0: You are the most (laughs) precious (laughs) listeners in the world. Thank you so much.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Anael and this is Helena. Hello. And we are PhD students at the University of Copenhagen. And in this episode of Please Explain, we will discuss how gender influences success in research and, most importantly, how to fight the odds. So recently, you may have heard of this one paper published in Nature Communications that looked at the association between mentorship in early career and success in research. And although the study in itself was correct, the interpretation of the results was questionable. Basically, it suggested that it was detrimental for a woman's career to be mentored by a woman and that a woman should rather be mentored by a man. And as you would expect, the study sparked outrage among scientists and it was retracted.
0: So we will discuss the results of this study as well as some others that we selected. Mm. But before we start, I would like to make a short disclaimer, also explain what gender gap means and is going to explain how we measure success in research so in our podcast today we're going to refer to the traditional gender nominations and mention women and female and men and male because that's what the studies we've been looking at uh, have used as categories and we're aware of the full spectrum of possibilities and we don't want to discriminate anyone with this yeah and we also will actually focus on really only the gender gap, uh, rather than looking for any other discriminations as for example ethnicity, uh, sexuality or disability, because it just would not fit into a 20 minutes podcast episode. And lastly, uh, female discrimination is also of course found in many many other fields, not only in research, but because we're both microbiologists, we choose a field of research to talk about the gender gap.
1: And can you please explain what gender gap means?
0: Yes. So according to the World Economic Forum, the gender gap is a combination of the differences between men and women across various sectors, for example, health, education, politics, or economics. And this can, for example, be seen in a difference in salary, credibility, legal rights, representation and leadership, access to resources, healthcare, education, and so mm. on. So you see, it's a huge field that is spanning many different aspects. Mm. And we will mention some of those now. Um, Uh, in the context of the scientific world. And so first we need to explain how success
1: is measured in research. So to work in research, you are mostly dependent on grants. So you need them for salary, to do experiments, for facilities, for everything. So you apply for a grant, hopefully you get the money, um, you do the experiments and then you write your results in a scientific paper. And then these papers, they are published in journals of different impact factors. So the higher the impact factor is and the higher ranking the journal is. And the impact factor is basically a measure of how often an article uh, in that journal is cited on average. So a first measure of a researcher's success is how many papers they published and how their papers ranked in terms of impact factor. And then, you usually never publish a paper alone. So on a scientific paper, there is a list of authors. And the way it goes is that the first author is the person that did the most work. And the last person on the list is the person that supervised the research. So usually that's the professor. And these two positions, so the first one and the last one, are usually the most prestigious positions on a paper. And so the more papers you publish, the highest ranking your research is, and the easiest it is to
0: attract funding for research. Okay, Anel, so now, tell me about the retracted paper.
1: Yes, so the study was looking at 3 million pairs of junior scientists and their mentor, and it assessed, among other things, how their gender influenced their future career in terms of success. The authors looked at the difference in outcomes of junior scientists who had female mentors compared to those who had male mentors, and it showed that juniors having female mentors have less success in their career than those having male mentors. And it also showed that a female mentor receives about 18% less citations on a paper when she co-authors a paper with a female uh, junior scientist rather than a male junior scientist. So basically, when on a paper the first author and the last author are females, the paper gets 18% less citations. So less recognition than if a junior scientist was a male.
0: 18 that's great. Yeah,
1: 18%. Wow. Yeah. So the natural conclusion uh, maybe you and I could get out of this is that um, it comes from how female scientists suffer biases and encounter barriers in the research field. Mm. But uh, that's not what the authors of this paper Concluded, They concluded, and I quote, that female scientists may benefit from opposite gender mentorships in terms of their publication potential and impact throughout their post mentorship careers, which basically means to get a man uh, if you want to succeed in research. And this is what makes this study wrong, because rather than criticizing these facts and discussing ways to change things, the author's advice is to go backwards and basically stop trying to improve things for women in research. So from this study, we wondered why are these results even possible? How can we explain these differences between female and male regarding success in research?
0: Yeah. So for one thing, we found uh, several studies actually that are very upsetting (laughs) because they show (laughs) that women are perceived as less qualified than men. Mm -hmm. So in the first study I would like to show you is uh, conducted by Princeton University. Uh, And here they gave out the same application files for a researcher position to uh, 127 professors uh, and they changed the name of the applicants to be either female or male. Mm -hmm. And then they asked the professors to assess the competence, the salary and the amount of mentoring they were willing to give to the applicant. And yeah, it was uh, shown that the male applicants uh, were rated as being significantly more competent and hireable than the identical female yeah. applicant. Uh, and actually what was most shocking to me was that uh, this was independent of the gender of the professor.
1: Yeah. So female professors also discriminate against women yes, applicants. Exactly. Okay. Yes, exactly.
0: Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. And another another study, which is also showing very measurable results, actually, is the Journal of Behavioral Ecology changed their policy uh, in their reviewing process. So that means that normally uh, when you have written your article, you hand it into a journal and you have a panel of reviewers that will decide about either acceptance or a rejection of mm-hmm. your of your paper. Uh, and this journal changed their policy to a double-blinded process so that the reviewers would not know the gender of the author Mm. Uh, and they saw an increase of eight percent of female first authorship papers afterwards Mm.
1: yeah it's actually encouraging in a way to think that some journals are now installing these policies um, and yeah, I was seeing last time on a journal also that they were giving the option of choosing double-blinded review uh, so we can hope for more of this type of improvement in the future, mm. uh, hopefully.
0: Yeah, and the last story that I also thought was rather interesting. In this study, they searched for the words genius and brilliant in more than 40 million teacher evaluations at ratemyprofessor.com. Mm. And here they found that they have been used significantly more often for Uh, to describe male uh, professors Mm. compared to female professors. And then also with this, uh, with those results, they could actually predict the amount of female PhD students in a given scientific field. So the more they use the words genius or Mm. uh, brilliant to rate professors, the less female PhD students they had in that field. That's crazy.
1: But it's actually interesting how some words make you think automatically of a man or a woman. So mm-hmm. in that case, genius and brilliant. But I guess it's the same in a way when when you think about other attributes like mm. smart and brave and bold, you automatically think of a man. And then when you talk about someone who is caring and cute and, I don't know,
0: yeah. Polite. Yeah, polite. Uh, yeah.
1: Um, it makes you think more of a woman, yeah. uh, which...
0: Sucks. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> I mean, no, but I think it's we true are ahead. caring, hey, cute yeah, yeah. and polite, but we yeah. are also... We're also bold and brave and very <laughs> smart. <laughs> yes, we are.
1: Uh, yeah, and it's yeah. the same with um, when you think about specific careers. So, for example, when you think about someone who is a doctor or a pilot uh, mm. compared to someone who's a nurse or I don't know, yeah, like midwife. A A midwife or something. Yeah. Yeah. So you really have these associations between certain careers mm. and certain genders. Yes. Yeah, and actually I was reading lately, um, I think it was on Twitter a few days ago, but someone commented on a researcher saying, she's a great female researcher. Mm. And you would never say, he is a great <laughs> male researcher. True. So why do you need to say that gender? It's, yeah, uh, it's a bit interesting. Uh, but on the topic of kind of gendered language. Uh, We also have some studies on this. Um, So by gendered language, in these studies we we mean how men compared to women express themselves. And one study that I thought was really interesting is from Ruben, uh, published in 2014 in PNAS. Basically it showed that uh, men are more likely to boast and overstate their performance in tests. Whereas women are more likely to be cautious in their statement or underreport their performance. And then I had another study, and it's from Kolev, uh, published in 2019. And in that study, the authors looked at almost 7,000 grant proposals submitted to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation between 2008 and 2017. And for these grant proposals, in the reviewing process, the reviewers did not know if the applicant was a man or a woman. And so the reviewers scored the grants and they decided if the applicant would receive the grant or not. And it was shown in the study that women received significantly lower scores from reviewers than men did. And that seemed to come from the communication style that was used in the proposal. So the researchers looked at the occurrence of specific words used in the grant, and they found that men tended to use broad words more often while women favored more specific and narrow terms.
0: Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that then it sounds more cautious or yeah. maybe unsure. and yeah, yeah. not so trustworthy, maybe.
1: Yeah, probably. Uh, although it was shown that the proposals uh, containing those more bold statements did not lead to a better research outcome. Mm. So it's not because you say mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to cure cancer. Uh, in your proposal that you will succeed better in your research. And so the authors in in this paper, they suggest that the grant reviewers could be trained to limit their sensitivity to communication styles. And also it was shown that male reviewers tend to score male applicants better than female reviewers do. So it seems that female reviewers are less sensitive to the bold statements uh, that are used by male applicants. So one possibility to kind of level this imbalance would be to increase the number of female reviewers. Mm. So if you remember what we discussed about how research works combined with the studies we presented, you can understand how this becomes a vicious circle. So to make this clear, there is a gender bias and women are seen as less qualified than men, even with evidence to the contrary, which means that women receive less research funding in science and this funding gap leads to women publishing fewer research articles and the articles may receive fewer citations. So this leads to women being less visible as researchers and therefore having less funding success.
0: Yeah, and as you can imagine, this downward spiral ultimately leads to women being underrepresented in the research field. Yeah. Uh, so for example, there has been a report by UNESCO in 2019 Uh, Stating that the total number of employed women in research and development worldwide lies at (laughs) 29.3%. That means one in three people employed are women. And this, uh, this varies actually uh, across all the different countries they looked at. And just to give the two extremes. So in chart, we have a lowest number with about only 5% of the researchers being women, while the highest number we find in Myanmar, actually, where we have 75% of the employees in research and development being women. Yeah. And Anel, do you want to guess how <laughs> high the percentage of female researchers are in Denmark where we are right now?
1: Um, I would say f- 43%.
0: Almost. Really? <laughs> According to this UNESCO report, it's 33 actually. Okay, but
1: it's not almost, I said 43. It's <laughs> a <laughs> <is> 10% difference. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah,
0: okay, you're right. I, th- I was uh, tempted by the three in the back. So, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs>
1: That's not an important
0: number. Oh God, OK. OK, maybe. okay. Um, uh, what about Germany? Uh, in Germany, it's similar. It's about 28%. So also kind of around the, yeah, yeah, 30%. the world average. Exactly. Yeah. Same in France, actually. And also, if that's going to be a bit cringy now, but we can see where <laughs> uh, some of our listeners are from. So we looked up the numbers for those countries. Uh, so if you're interested in that, Uh, Otherwise, just skip the next 15 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So in Ireland, the number of employed women in research and development is at 35 percent, similar to as generally in the UK and 38 percent in Spain with 40. And then we have uh, Nepal with about eight percent and India with 14 percent. And then it goes up a bit again for Austria and Sweden, we are again around 30 percent. And then the Philippines, New Zealand and Malaysia and Lithuania are all at around 50 percent of the uh, employees being women.
1: Good for you. Yes, right. (laughs) And actually this underrepresentation of women in science is especially reflected when it comes to prestigious positions. So there is a study from West published in 2013 in PLOS ONE, that shows that it is not access to research that is more difficult for women, but actually keeping women in research. Mm. And um, so the authors looked at the percentage of women PhDs in specific fields uh, related to science and technology between the years 1960 and 2009. And in life sciences in the 2000s, 50% of the PhDs were women, but only on average 18% were full professors.
0: So we're losing 30% of the women on yeah. the way? Yeah,
1: or maybe not losing, but they don't get to the high uh, positions.
0: Ah, okay. Yeah. Yes, yeah.
1: But still, uh, you can see from the study that it's, in a way, encouraging, because this proportion increases. Uh, so for comparison, again, in life sciences, in the 1960s, there were zero female professors, and in 1980, there was 5 to 8% female professors. So... Good.
0: That's yeah. kind of nice to see that I have been an improvement. Yeah, and hopefully this continues like that. Yeah. Is there anything that we can do actively to keep this improving?
1: Yeah. So for women with the studies that we have discussed so far, I would say that it is important to always use an assertive language. So be confident mm-hmm. with, for example, the results you show. So don't apologize for your results when you present them or be the one also that says bold statements uh, as long as they are not untrue <laughs> uh, but yeah so be confident have an assertive language then in terms of salary ask for pay raises and um, maybe also discuss your salary with others to kind of know where you situate compared to others salary it doesn't have to be a mm-hmm. taboo And then, especially in the in the field of research, do not be afraid of uh, negotiating offer positions. Yeah, good point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, but I guess that's not a problem that's just for women to um, solve. So what would you say that men should do to also lower this um, gender bias?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, As a rule of thumb, I would say before change comes awareness. Mm. So lucky you that you're listening to this podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, just kidding. Um, So, yeah, generally, I think, yeah, it is good to be aware of that. There is a problem like that Mm. Uh, and also acknowledge that you might have some privileges if if you're a man uh, in this whole system, Mm. then if if it is in the power of your position, so for example, if you are a leader somewhere, um maybe actively choose to give equal pay to your male or female employees mm. and uh, give the equal raises for men and uh, women uh, maybe try to implement uh, equal opportunities for childcare or like yeah maternity paternity leaves mm. But of course, that's very dependent on where you are in which country and so yeah. on, what, what are maybe legal requirements you have to fulfill. Mm. Again, if you are in a, in a leading position, make sure that you always include women in the conversations about their own futures. It does sound kind of simple now, but generally don't assume that a woman wouldn't want to travel or yeah. move or take on more responsibility just because she has small children, for example. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. her choice to make. Yeah, exactly. And then overall, just show respect. Again, as a rule of thumb, if you wouldn't say something to a man, then you might not want to say it to a woman either. Mm. And finally, I think challenge other men's behavior. So if some if you see someone doing something wrong or saying something inappropriate, then uh, raise your voice.
1: Yeah, It has more impact when it's a man saying that to a man. Because the truth is that when a woman says that to a man, she sounds mm. either emotional <laughs> or crazy or a lot of these terms that are often associated with women. Yeah. So it's good if you are a man to also step up and say, yeah, maybe you should not say that. Yeah. And actually, I guess this is not a problem that you can only tackle in the workplace, but also at home, uh, for example, with splitting housework equally.
0: Yes, that is very true. Uh, so I'm actually just reading this book called Invisible Women um, by Caroline Keado Perez which uh, is meant to expose data bias in a world designed for men. And there one of the things she states is that uh, Iceland was once rated to be the best country to be a working woman by the economist. Mm. Uh, but actually there is no such thing as a woman who does not work. So there's an estimation of that about 75% of unpaid work is done by women that includes for example housework, childcare or mm. elder care which is an estimate of like three to six hours per day for women, uh, while as men work about 30 minutes to two hours Mm. per day that is not paid.
1: Okay, so you mean like uh, making food, cleaning the flat, doing laundry, taking the kids to school, this type of thing. Exactly.
0: Uh, and then there's a, a study from 2010, which was conducted in the US, where they looked at uh, female scientists and how much uh, work they do at home. And they found that female scientists do about 10 hours of exactly those household chores, additionally to the 60-hour work week they already had anyway, okay. while this for male scientists being only about five hours. Mm. Uh, this is just Crazy. Yeah. So so yeah, I think we really should acknowledge that this is something that exists. And yeah, yeah adds two responsibilities. Yes. But to maybe finish on a more positive note, we thought we're going to discuss uh, our favorite women in science. Mm. And it was actually a bit difficult to choose, I have to say.
1: Yeah. And it's also that I don't think I had a favorite woman in science. Mm. We we know of very famous ones like Marie mm-hmm. Curie, yeah. Jane Goodall. Uh, yes. But so I had to look through a lot of uh, Wikipedia Mm -hmm. (laughs) pages and um, but I wanted to find a true badass woman. So this is not a subject we addressed here. But of course, there is far more discrimination than just gender in research. And just the fact that you have the option of pursuing a career in higher education is often a privilege Mm -hmm. uh, because, Yeah, not everyone can afford to study. Some people have more responsibilities. Some people have disabilities. So the one I chose to present now had to battle with several of those discriminations. And her name uh, was Flossie Wang Stahl. And she was born in 1946. And she was a Chinese-American virologist and molecular biologist. She died just last year in 2020. And she was the first scientist to clone HIV which helped determine the function of its genes. So it proved that HIV is the cause of AIDS, and it aided in the development of blood tests for HIV. And about her life story, she was actually born as Wang Yi Ching in uh, Guangzhou in China. And when she was a child, her family had to flee to Hong Kong after the communist revolution in the late 1940s. And no women in her family had ever worked outside the home or studied science and actually she went to the United States to get her PhD degree and her teachers suggested before she left that she changes her name to something in English. So that's why she then was renamed Flossie. Mm. And it kind of makes sense because ethnicity can be read Mm. in your name and you can also be discriminated because of your ethnicity. So I thought it was really an incredible woman and someone who actually did a lot to help the community. Um, so, yeah, that's mine. Um, that's really cool. Yeah. Who is yours, Helena?
0: <laughs> yes. So uh, I also had, yeah, as you said, a very hard time choosing one because, mm. yeah, they're all pretty cool. Uh, in the end, I decided to go for maybe someone that's not so known yet. At least I did not know her before. And uh, mm. she's called Dorothy Mary Crawford Hodgkin. And she was born 1910 in Cairo in Egypt. Mm. Uh, although her family is British, but her parents worked there at that time. Uh, But so she was sent back to England alone, like her parents stayed in Egypt, actually. So she was sent back to England to attend secondary school. Uh, And at that time, girls were not allowed to study chemistry. But together with her dad, they fought the system and then she could get enrolled into chemistry class. And then a few years later, in 1936, she obtained her PhD in chemistry uh, from Cambridge. And she was involved in a discovery of the 3D structures of several compounds, as for example, cholesterol, insulin, vitamin B12 or penicillin. Uh, And this is super important work because it can help you then afterwards to produce those compounds uh, synthetically. And she actually got a Nobel Prize for this in 1964. She died in 1994, but actually the last years of her life, she suffered from uh, rheumatoid arthritis and was bound to a wheelchair. But nonetheless, she was still uh, sticking to her research and Mm. going to the lab and working as a scientist. So that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. And a fun fact, uh, (laughs) a few years ago, she got uh, on a stamp in uh, from the Royal Society in England. It was like a special collector's uh, edition. And another famous English scientist that was also in one of the stamps, you know, already from one of our (laughs) previous episodes. It was the brave Edward Jenner who helped to develop the smallpox vaccine. From episode two, the yes. viruses, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, if you want to know more about Edward Jenner, go and listen back to that episode.
1: <laughs> nice, yeah. Um, so that was almost it for this episode. Um, I know Vitalina had a few tips. For <laughs> podcasts?
0: Uh, yeah, so basically it was this one podcast I, I found during my uh, the research for this episode. It's called Her STEM Story and you can listen to it on, for example, Spotify as well. It comes weekly and it's just different stories of uh, women in STEM careers, uh, and it's really, yeah, it's really good. Mm. Um, and then just another uh, link we will also put in the show notes is an art project by uh, South Korean Youngmi Yoon who photographed children in their Bedroom. bedrooms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When all their belongings were kind of draped ar- around them. Mm. And you can see so clearly the difference between boys and girls, because Everything in the boys room is blue and everything mm. in the girls room is pink. Yeah. It's it's really upsetting to see it. It's it's just <laughs> it's
1: also all plastic usually. So it's yes. a bit also another problem, but that's true. <laughs> that's um, very true.
0: Yes, but yeah, it's it's kind of impressing to, to watch it. So we're going to put the link uh, yeah. in and you can look at the pictures. Yes,
1: but thank you. We also wanted to say that we have now an email address. So if you have questions, if you have super cool papers that we need to know about if you have ideas for future episodes if you want to tell us how great we are <laughs> uh, you can email us and the email address is podcast explain at gmail.com
0: we're also gonna put that in the show notes
1: yes we will
0: bye bye, bye, bye.